As you are turning there, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time. And Lord, we just thank you that we can come to you. Trust, Lord, that you desire to speak to us through your word. And so bless this time that we have together in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Okay, so at church, our title of our message was Worship on Sunday. We went through Nehemiah chapters 11 and 12. And within that section of scripture, there was a time where singers were isolated, musicians were isolated, um, two groups of choirs started on top of the wall, and they went in the opposite directions, and then they met at the temple gate where they would go down, and then they would be in front of the temple, and then they would lead worship there. And so um, I was going to jump to chapter 13, but just really wanted to take a look at worship. And we talked about one of the best scriptures in the Bible for worship, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, where Paul says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service of worship, one version says. Another one, did I bring that set of notes here? I guess I didn't. Uh, So I didn't write that down. Um, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. And so from that, on Wednesday nights, we're going through know why you believe what you believe. And today I kind of wanted to hit a little bit on just piggybacking off of worship and um, what I wrote down in my notes. And I remember somebody said, hey, can I get all of those that you had mentioned Because the motivation for our worship is the mercy of God, God's love and God's grace, His goodness. And so I read this, it said, God's mercies are everything He has given us that we don't deserve, eternal love, eternal grace, the Holy Spirit, everlasting peace, eternal joy, saving faith, comfort, strength, wisdom, hope, patience, kindness, honor, glory, righteousness, security, eternal life, forgiveness, reconciliation, justification, sanctification, freedom, intercession, and much more. The knowledge and understanding of these incredible gifts motivates us to pour forth praise and thanksgiving, in other words, worship. So the title of the message being Knowing Why You Believe What You Believe, Love, Grace, and Mercy. We understand love and the love of God, God being love, um, especially through 1 Corinthians 13, right? It gives us a very good... Uh, definition of the word agape, that unconditional love. Um, We know mercy and grace through the word justice. The word justice means getting exactly what you deserve, right? So you do something bad, you get something bad. You do something good, you get something good. So justice. God is a just God, right? The Bible declares he is a God of justice. And so um, I don't know how God was able to figure this out. It's pretty cool, him being God and me not. But how could he be just and yet justify sinner? And that's God's, like in my mind, dilemma. For God, there are no dilemmas, right? He does what he wants and he's all-knowing. But how can he be just and punish sin and yet be the one that justifies the ungodly and makes them righteous? Well, he sent his son, right? And so we see love, grace, and mercy poured out in that one act God loving us, sending his son to be able to be the propitiation, big word, right? The appeasement of the wrath of God so that he would judge sin 
And that's what Jesus faced on the cross. And then we would be the recipients of that love, receiving his grace and mercy. So if you have justice is getting what you deserve, you have grace getting what you don't deserve and mercy not getting what you deserve. And so we're going to look at grace a little bit and then hopefully we'll come back to the application of worship. And it is, remember, presenting your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service of worship and being careful not to be conformed to the world, but being transformed by the renewing of your mind. Okay, so who were we without Christ and who we become with Christ? That's kind of as I as I begin this. These are just notes that I wrote. Who were we without Christ and who we become with Christ? Number one, we were born in sin. We were born in sin. Uh, Psalm 51, verse 5. I'm going to run through these and then we'll kind of bring it to a... I'm going to leave some loose ends, if you will, and then we'll tie, tie them all when we come to the end. But number one, we were born in sin. Psalm 51, verse 5 says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Number two, we were guilty of breaking God's holy laws. Romans 3, 9 through 20. We read that before. But I wanted you to read you the beginning. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 3, because there's a section there that I want you to be able to see what it's sandwiched in between. So Romans chapter 3, we're going to start at verse 9. So again, the question for number 2 was, we were guilty of breaking God's holy laws. Or not the question, but the point. Point number two is we were guilty of breaking God's holy laws. So Romans 3, starting uh, at verse 9, the Bible says, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. And then he gives us that beautiful list. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. Their tongues, they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. In the way of peace, they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Verse 19. Now, We know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So the law was brought in to show us that we are lawbreakers. The purpose of the law was to declare us guilty. We're already guilty without the law. We just didn't know what to call it. So the law comes, and then all of a sudden, ah, adulterer, murderer, liar, thief, so on and so forth. So the law just put a name to what we already were, born in Adam, inheriting inheriting that sinful nature. Okay, let me see. So those are my first two. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 1 John 1, 8 and 10 says, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth 
is not in us. Verse 10 says, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. The problem with humanity is we have a problem comparing ourselves to one another and looking not as bad as others. But God's standard is one of perfection, righteousness, holiness. And so we fall short of that. We fall short of God's righteousness. We fall short of God's holiness. We fall short of God's perfect, perfect standard or perfection. And so all of us lie in that dilemma. The next point is we were enemies of God. So we weren't just bad, but we were really bad. Enemies of God. Romans chapter 5, verse 6, the Bible says, For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Romans 5.10 says, For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God, and then it goes on to continue. Romans 8.7 says, Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. Colossians 1.21, the first part of that verse says, and you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works. And so enemies of God, it's bigger than just being bad. And again, we have a tendency to compare ourselves to one another, but it's like the analogy or the illustration that John Corson always uses. Like uh, if you go on your basketball court and you, you know, you pay, play somebody, you know, your, your, your little five-year-old neighbor, yeah, you could probably take them on and do pretty well, right? But if you invite Shaq or, you know, Kobe or somebody who can play basketball, you know, uh, Curry, what was his name? Uh, Stephen Curry, uh, somebody like that who's in the NBA, then no, you're not going to look pretty good. And so that's a problem that we have. We tend to compare ourselves to one another. So because of all this, the Bible declares that we are deserving of death. We deserve death. That's what we deserve. In Romans 6.23, the first part of that verse, it says, the wages of sin is death. And that's what we're deserving of. So spiritually, we were destitute, blind, unclean, and dead. Our souls were in peril of everlasting punishment. But then came the grace of God. If it was justice, we would be lost. If it was justice, if we got what we deserved, and we would be lost in sin, right? David said, my mother conceived me. I was conceived in sin. And so, again, we got to recognize that we have this sinful nature. God extended his favor to us. Grace is what saves us. So we're going to look at scriptures on grace. Ephesians 2.8, the Bible says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. So grace is what saves us. That gift, that, that justice, getting what you deserve. Grace, getting what you don't deserve. God gives us what we don't deserve. All those scriptures that we read on our condition and our state, lost, right, dead, destitute, without God, and then God looks at us and he says, I'm going to give you what you don't deserve. And so the first thing we see is grace is what saves us. Next, grace is the essence of the gospel. Acts chapter 20, verse 24. The Bible says, But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy in the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. The gospel, the good news, 
is God's grace. It's God's unmerited, unearned, undeserved favor extended to us. Grace gives us victory over sin. It's by God's grace that we're able to overcome sin. James chapter 4, verse 6, the Bible says, But he gives more grace, therefore he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so if I think, I got this, I can do this, I can lick this, I can, I can beat this sin, God says, wow, you're prideful, so I'm going to resist you. But when you're humble and you say, God, I can't. Lord, I've tried. Can you help me? Oh, then let me give you grace to overcome that sin. What a big difference in an attitude and a perspective. God will wait us out in those cases. That was James 4, verse 6. Grace gives us eternal encouragement and good hope, according to 2 Thessalonians 2, 16. The Bible says, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father, who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace. Our hope is found by grace. Our good consolation, our good, the good news that we receive, is by God's grace. So, the Bible repeatedly calls grace a gift. Uh, Ephesians 4, 7 is one verse. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. So again, God's given it to you. Now, what are we, gonna, what do we know about gifts? Five things. Number one, first, anyone who has ever received a gift understands that a gift is much different from a loan, which requires repayment or return by the recipient. The fact that grace is a gift means that nothing is owed in return. So all those things that we mentioned that God gave you, nothing, not, you don't have to, it's not a loan. It's not, well, I'm going to give you this, but you better show yourself worthy. No, 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 no. It's just, it, it's God's gift. And we reach out and take it. Receive it and partake of it. Second, there is no cost to the person who receives a gift. A gift is free to the recipient, although it is not free to the giver who bears the expense. The gift of salvation costs us sinners nothing, but the price of such an extravagant gift came at a great cost for our Lord Jesus who died in our place. Third, once a gift has been given, ownership of the gift is transferred and it is now ours to keep. There is a permanence in a gift that does not exist with loans or advances. When a gift exchanges, uh, changes hands, the giver permanently relinquishes all rights to, the, to renege or take back the gift in future. God's grace is ours forever. Fourth, in the giving of the gift, the giver voluntarily forfeits something he owns, willingly losing what belongs to him so that the recipient will profit from it. The giver becomes poor so the recipient can become richer. This generous and voluntary exchange from the giver to the recipient is visible in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, where the Bible says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sake, he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Number five, and finally, 
The Bible teaches that grace is completely unmerited. The gift and the act of giving have nothing to do or nothing at all to do with our merit or innate quality. Romans 4.4, 4, Romans 11.5, Romans uh, 5-6, through 6, 2, 2 Timothy 1.9-10. In fact, the Bible says quite clearly that we don't deserve God's salvation. Romans 5.8-10 through 10, uh, God says, God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son. Grace does not stop once we are saved. God is gracious to us for the rest of our lives, working within and upon us. The Bible encourages us with many additional benefits that grace secures for every believer. So I'll read you just these. Grace justifies us before a holy God. Then there's a bunch of scriptures. Grace provides us access to God to communicate and fellowship with Him. Uh, Ephesians 1.6, Hebrews 4.16. Grace wins for us a new relationship of intimacy with God. Exodus 33.17. Grace disciplines and trains us to live in a way that honors God. Titus 2.11-14, 2 Corinthians 8.7. Grace grants us immeasurable spiritual riches. Proverbs 10.22, Ephesians 2.7. Grace helps us in our every need. Hebrews 4.16. Grace is the reason behind our every deliverance. Psalm 44, 3-8 in Hebrews 4.16. And grace preserves us and comforts, encourages, and strengthens us. 2 Corinthians 13.14. 2 Thessalonians 2.16-17. And 2 Timothy 2.1. So now, if we go back to this idea of the mercies of God and all that we have in God, Paul is saying in Romans 12, 1 and 2, he's begging with us that we would present our bodies by the mercies of God, that he, we would present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Um, I just learned this today. We have three enemies. What are our three enemies? Is there a verse that tells us that? Where? Okay, so that one will mention the world. First John 2. Is that the one that says... Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. So that's going to mention the world. First John chapter 2, starting at verse 15, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. You're not going to find one verse that tells you that the enemy is the world, the flesh, and the devil. The first time that's ever mentioned in history is about... Excuse me? I'm not the only one learning today. Um, the first time that's mentioned is in the 1500s, and it's in a prayer book, but it talks about the world, the flesh, and the devil being our enemy. Now, does the Bible teach that the world, the flesh, and the, en and the devil are our enemies? Yes. We just read the one of the world. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world, for everything that is in the world is, is not of God. It's, it's right. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. That's world. 
Um, the devil's obviously our enemy, and we could get that all through Revelation. We can get that uh, even when Jesus is tempted by the devil in uh, Matthew chapter 3 or 4. Baptism and then temptation? Chapter 4. Um, and, of course, our flesh all through Romans, right? And we read those verses. The carnal mind is enmity with God, Okay. To combat the enemy of the flesh, we are to flee, run. You are no match for your flesh. You are no match for your flesh. You don't talk to it. You don't play with it. You don't compromise with it. Your flesh has an insatiable appetite, and it will consume you. So you have to make sure that you understand that when it comes to the flesh, you flee, you run. Remember Joseph, flee uh, uh, sexual immorality, the book of Ephesians says. When it comes to the devil, you stand. Okay, I got all this from Barnhouse uh, tape. That, did you get to hear it, Chuck? It's supposed to be last week. Good stuff, good stuff. So the, um, the devil, we stand. And the devil will come in temptations like somebody having a conversation with you and saying, you know, all, all roads lead to God. All, all, you know, all religions pretty much teach the same thing. No, they don't. You stand and you say, no, they don't. Jesus was exclusive. And so maybe many religions teach similar things, but Jesus was absolutely extreme when he said that he is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. And no one comes to the Father but by him. In the book of 1 John, he would go as far to say, if you have the Son, you have the Father. You don't have the Son, you don't have the Father. Okay, so very exclusive. And I love, I think it's C.S. Lewis's book where he says, there is no option for Jesus being a good teacher, a good moral teacher. He said things that were extreme. So he is either a liar, a lunatic, or he is Lord. But there's no room for good moral teacher, just like Gandhi, and just like name, you know, insert, religious guru. No, Jesus was exclusive. And so anytime uh, the devil comes at you, stand firm and you expose that darkness. So if somebody is coming to you and saying that many roads lead to God, um, can we just, uh, that's what's wrong with you Christians, you're so narrow-minded. Your argument's not with me. It's not with Christians. Your argument is with God's word. Okay, so you stand against the devil. Well, we're looking at the world, right? Because in Romans 12, 2, it says, do not be conformed to the world. And so to come against the world, and the world is desiring to squeeze you in its mold, and it's happening right now at rapid pace. The world is trying to squeeze you into its mold because when you do speak up, you're looked upon and called something negative, something that you don't want to be called, something that you probably don't even identify yourself as. Well, I'm not a bigot. Well, I'm not homophobic. Well, I'm not narrow. I'm not narrow-minded. I'm not all of these things. And so we got to be careful to combat the world is to make sure that you are not squeezed into the mold that the world wants to squeeze you into. And the only way you can do that is, it tells us in the very next section in Romans 12 too, renewing of your mind. Renewing of your mind. It's not your opinion versus somebody else's opinion. It's not your opinion versus 
in my opinion, it's the Bible. It's what does the scripture say? And so your mind is renewed as it's cleansed by the washing of the water of the word. Your ideologies, your paradigms, the, the lens that you see life through comes through the word of God. And so before you are anything in this world, before you are male or female, before you are whatever race you are, before you are whatever country you're in or born, country of origin, before all of those titles and all of those things that you identify yourself as, you're a Christian. You're a child of God. And that supersedes all other identifications that you have. God bought you. He owns you. You are a child of God. And so the way we overcome or combat the world wanting to squeeze us into its mold is by the renewing of our mind. And so we have to be careful because all of us have things that we believe because we live in the world, right? We watch TV, we listen to radio, we listen to music, we go to movies, we, you know, we're at work, we're, you know, we have family. Always, the world is always trying to squeeze us into its mold. And the way we combat it, that is the Word of God. So again, it's not an opinion versus an opinion. It's not a learned person and an ignorant person or uneducated person. It has nothing to do with that. The Bible says that you have the mind of Christ. You don't have the emotions of Christ. You have the mind of Christ. And that's a powerful thing. And so as God is uh, uh, getting you away from being conformed to this world, he's transforming you by the renewing of your mind. So that is, what was the title of the message? Love, grace, mercy. Know why you believe what you believe. So what is love? What is love? God. God is love. Okay. So what do we when we say God is love? What do we mean? It's not emotional. It's anything but emotional. We never want to deny our emotions. We never. Our emotions are kind of like. Um, that's a different kind of love. Arrows is the only one of the four loves that can can be emotional. Storgi is an affection. I guess that's emotion, huh? Affection. Affection for your children, affection for your pets, uh, family. That's storgi. Uh, phileo, brotherly love. That's a choice. Uh, but storgi, I think, and, and phileo are both choices. Uh, agape, it, it's out of the realm of emotion, and that's 100% what I choose to do. I choose to be kind. I choose to be patient. I choose to be long-suffering with people. All of those things, right? I choose not to be rude. I choose not to, all of those things that 1 Corinthians 13 says. And then eros is the only one that's really emotional. Eros is erotic love, romantic love. That is rooted in God. It's beautiful, and God gave it to us. God gave us the ability to be able to feel all those wonderful things. There's nothing wrong with them in the context of what's right scripturally. Obviously, take that out, and it's like fire out of a, a pit. It can, it can be damaged, right? Fire in the pit, what does it do? It warms you. It, it toasts your marshmallows. It's all these good things. Take it out of the pit and burn down your house. Um, so God being love is all of those things that we said in 1 Corinthians 13, but he is 
gracious. He is kind. He is all of those. You read 1 Corinthians 13. You put your name in there and you're like, oh, I fall short. That's what we want to do. But you put God's name there and it fits perfectly, right? Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. All of those things. Okay, so what is grace? It's unmerited favor. It's benevolence. It's a gift. It's a free gift. And all of those things we have by God's grace and all of those things we read, that if if there's a gift to be given, then it means certain things. We have to own those things. We have to take those things because the enemy would want us to think that we have to earn God's favor. You already have God's favor. We have to earn righteousness. You already have righteousness. And this is something that the average Christian will struggle with their entire life because nothing in the world compares to what God has to offer you. Corinthians 13, 1 through, well, you can go through the whole chapter, 1 through 13. But verses 4 through 8 are the definition of agape love. Okay. Um... So grace and all of those things that we long for, we have them as a gift. And we walk around as Christians sometimes like paupers, poor people, where we're trying to pull, you know, pull our pockets out and all we come up with is lint. We, we got riches in Christ, unspeakable. Everything that belonged to Jesus, you inherited when you became a Christian. You are a co-heir with Christ. Everything. Walk in that truth. Rejoice in that truth. Mercy, not getting what we deserve. We deserve a lot of bad things. Don't confuse that with reaping and sowing. But the things that we really deserve and we don't get, man, we deserve to be on the cross. Are we ever going to hang on a cross? We deserve capital punishment, we could say, right? Are we ever going to be cap? No, because Jesus died in our place. And so all of those things that we deserve that we don't get, that's God's mercy being shown to us. 